one of the strongest aspects of the practice and the teachings for me has been the cultivation of mind. This mind training through the mindfulness, the cultivation of mindfulness, to be really be able to turn that attention towards my mind, this mental activity that I have seen gives rise to so much distress. And the more that I could understand and bring some control, really, over my mind, I found that I started to feel more ease in my life. That seemed to be the doorway for me to really be able to relax and, and to be more present, to be more engaged in my life. So I want to talk tonight a bit about the cultivation of mind uh, looking at one of the suttas from the Buddha, um, one that has really stood out for me, one of my favorite ones. And when I was looking over it again tonight, I could really see how much that has really influenced my training and my orientation and my practice. So I wanted to share that with you tonight. But before I do, I just want to talk a little bit about this... Um, problematic mind of ours. <laughs> and particularly when you come on retreat and you have a lot of time in the silence and looking at your own mind, you really start to see this. You know, this is what we encounter. So one of the things that we start to think when we first come into meditation practice, and maybe it lasts for some time, is that the point of the practice is to clear our thoughts. I mean, sometimes, particularly in the beginning, a lot of people have ideas that somehow we're supposed to stop our thoughts or you know, empty our minds, um, that that really is the pathway, that's the goal. Um, rather, than, rather than coming into a wise relationship with our thoughts, which is really more accurate in terms of what we're wanting to achieve, Many people try to annihilate their mind or try to cut off their mind. And we can even see this sometimes in our own practice when we are no, we're paying attention to thought, we're noticing the way that we're getting lost, and then the moment that we recognize that we're lost, we kind of sh shake and get alarmed and yank ourselves back to the breath or to the body. And there's a kind of sometimes we could have some reaction to our thinking mind because of this idea, because of this confusion in a way that that's what we're supposed to be doing. And so one of the, one of the things that we really suggest to people is to really notice the way that we turn our attention away from the thought rather than yanking our attention away because there's fear and aversion in that. So we don't want to keep cultivating and reinforcing that aversion. So that very gentle, just kind of a gentle turning away from the thought into the breath, into the body, really is a way to ground and to come back more into the clarity of our awareness so that we're not caught in the fixation of our thought. So that's one of the ways that that idea can manifest in our meditation practice. And I want to read this... Um, uh, it's a, a part of a talk that uh, Dr. Ra Robert Thurman gave at uh, the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center some time ago. Uh, he's a, a scholar and a professor in Buddhism. And I it just really want to read it to you because it, I think it uh, kind of points to some of this confusion. So he says, This is one of my favorite things to propose to people who meditate. Westerners are all taught from a very early age a certain form of intensive mental patterning, but not Asians. I love to ask Tibetans to add up in their heads 9,473 and 6,722. A Tibetan cannot do that. They absolutely will not be able to do that. The most intelligent and great lama, whatever, they can't do it. They go, huh? Say it again. They won't do it. We can do it easily, almost any of us, because we can make a picture in our mind of it, visualize the numbers, put a line under them, and go zip, zip, zop, carry one, two, three, four. 
We can visualize such a thing easily. We are taught since childhood to do such things in our heads. In the normal cycling of thought, we have lots of very tight little circuits that pattern our thinking. A lot of energy is tied up in that. So when we come to meditate and begin to slow the thinking pattern down, or even abandon, abandon the thoughts and see them float away, this can tend to be a very powerful experience for us, to suddenly be suspended in space-time for a few moments of our life without thinking about what we were doing. Suddenly, there is so much more energy released by getting out of that tight little circuit. We can feel calm, or we can feel like we're floating. We might even feel like we have attained something. But in the Buddhist nations, for whom such meditative disciplines have been so much a part of their civilization and culture for so long, such as Tibetans, the norm is not to think much. So therefore, they are already very relaxed. They have a very relaxed culture, a very friendly culture. Don't think about a lot of things. On the contrary, their educational system has all sorts of ways of battering them to get them to think, because there can be an excess of no thinking, believe it or not. So he's just pointing out, you know, how again it's a conditioned kind of response. We are very developed intellectually in uh, our culture, in the Western cultures. He said, but you know, that's again a conditioned thing. And he says, you know, as he says, they have to really try to get these uh, Tibetans, in this case, what we're speaking about, to really think. So he says, he just ends by saying, but not thinking isn't it either. Even if you've learned that the secret way and the high and the great seal of perfection is like a clarified, luminous, and magnificent, marvelous state of non-thought, that's too simple. It's much more than non-thought. So I just think it's very interesting for us to reflect on that because I think there is really this bias, you know, this bias that somehow our thoughts are either the enemy or they're not important or somehow we have to get beyond them. He points out how when we meditate, we're slowing down the thinking process and we start to get out of those tight little feedback loops, those circuits. And when we do, there's a lot of energy that gets freed up. And the reason is because we're actually freed up from our fixations. And getting caught up in our thoughts, identified with our thoughts, we can think of it like the same, we could use the metaphor of ice. It's like water that is frozen. It takes a form, it takes a shape, and it's hard. It's kind of, it's not very, very pliable, flexible. But if that water, if that ice starts to melt and starts to flow and open out, it's, it's still water. It was water in, in its ice form. It's also water in its flowing form. But there is more flexibility. There's more pliability, malleability. And it's the same. It frees up. Consciousness, consciousness, we can think of consciousness like the ice. It gets bound up in these tight little circuits, and we feel bound up by it. And then as we slow down and soften that and open up, we actually feel the freedom. We're not so bound up in the same way. Consciousness is not so bound up in the same way. We are we are instructed to know our experience, to not be lost, to not be identified, to not get fixated. And this knowing quality is the function of consciousness, is the function of awareness, to know our experience, to come into contact with experience. So what's important and what we're really trying to cultivate in our practice is not a particular condition, and certainly this has been coming through very strongly in the teachings this week, both from Stephen and Martine. We're not trying to create another condition. So like no thought would be a condition of mind, thought would be a condition of mind. What we're trying to cultivate is this awareness, is being aware to know our experience 
So we know our experience when we're thinking, and we know our experience when we're not thinking. And the more that we are in the knowing, this is what gets strengthened. This is what gets strong. And more and more, we feel this quality of wakefulness or uh, being present or connected in contact with our experience in a more immediate way, in a more direct way, because we're not we're not bound up, we're not frozen in little narrow ideas and limited beliefs that, that can feel like, you know, these tight little circuits. And our, our reality then can get defined, gets defined by that. So we're opening up in that way. Knowing is what's important. Awareness itself is not concerned about what it is aware of. Awareness itself is impartial. It arises and falls away with its object. It rises together, rises up and falls away. It doesn't, it, doesn't ma- it doesn't matter what we are experiencing or what our consciousness is bound up with. We just want to know that. We want to be engaged in that. We want to participate in that. So our thinking is going to come and go. We certainly have seen that over these days. And so will what Robert Thurman calls a clarified, luminous, magnificent, marvelous state of non-thought. Has anyone had anything like that last? I know you've had moments where there's been non-thought, but it doesn't. It doesn't last. Even in, even in uh, states of uh, uh, strong absorption, it's, uh, it's, it's conditioned. It's held together by conditions and supported by conditions. When those conditions change, so does the absorption. It doesn't last. So things come together and they fall apart. But the awareness can get stronger. The awareness can get stronger. So we have this sense of being more present. And when we do, that's what gives this feeling of being more genuine and more authentic in our experience because there's a sense of more immediacy in contact with the here and now moment, the here and now reality. We can even feel this in other people when we're with somebody who is quite present, who's more relaxed, who's more open. There's something that is in that field of the presence of that person that then sometimes helps us relax or maybe feel more uh, uh, unguarded. It's just there's, there's, there's something that gets communicated in that uh, presence, in that field of, of openness. I had a friend who talked to me once about how she would make dinner for her husband, you know, night after night and night, and, and he would often just not really be there. It's like he, there was a way, he was very preoccupied with his day, with his thoughts, and she was talking about how she would be very present, very wanting to engage, but it was like there's nobody really there to engage with, and the, how lonely that would feel, how lonely, because this... We want to engage. We want to relate with each other. And when we make ourselves more available, when our consciousness is more freed up, there's more to engage with. We feel this. uh, Martine talks about this creative engagement. Not only a creative engagement with ourselves, but a, a creative engagement with others as well. It brings us a kind of joy. But these habits of our mind are so strong that they overpower our consciousness so often of the time. And they they take on their own reality. They become real. And we've seen this when we when we have a memory of maybe having an argument with somebody and we're we're bright in the story and we can feel like we're right there, like it's happening right in the moment. And not only is it happening in the mind, but we can have a whole physiological response as if it's happening in the moment. Our heart starts to beat faster, our muscles start to clench, we can get angry and agitated, and it's just a memory. 
it's just something happening in our mind. Or the opposite, we could have a fantasy. We think of something very beautiful. My fantasy used to always be being on some tropical island in, in Thailand in the turquoise blue waters until I actually wound up going once. And I happened to wind up there in uh, August. It was probably 110 degrees. And I wound up getting uh, bitten by a mosquito and had dengue fever. And you know, was in this hut with uh, the boiling heat and uh, fire ants going up and down the column. And you know, it's just not <laughs> the way we imagine it's going to be. But the fantasy can make us feel as if we're there. It, bring, it takes on this whole reality, this very powerful mind. This is from um, 19th century philosopher Vivekananda. Um, I like to read things from other uh, uh, spiritual traditions because it really shows how we're so much uh, engaged in the same uh, journey here. So this is called monkey mind, and you know we have this word monkey mind, which is such a, a wonderful metaphor. And I always think of, you know, like a monkey um, just swinging from branch to branch, you know, looking for the next sweet banana. You know, it's like the mind is just swinging from one thing to the next, looking for the next sweet tasting thing. You know, I think that's where, where one of the ways, uh, places this metaphor comes from. But this is Vivekananda. There was a monkey, restless by its own nature, as all monkeys are. As if that were not enough, someone made him drink freely of wine so that that monkey became still more restless. Then a scorpion stung him. When a creature is stung by a scorpion, he jumps about for a whole day. So the poor monkey found his condition worse than ever. To complete his misery, a demon entered into him. What language can describe the uncontrollable restlessness of that monkey? The human mind is like that monkey, incessantly active by its own nature. Then it becomes drunk with the wine of desire, thus increasing its turbulence. After desire takes possession comes the sting of the scorpion of anger and jealousy, the jealousy of the success of others, you know, comparing mind. And last of all, the demon of pride enters the mind, making it think itself all important, how hard it is to control such a mind. I think we've all, you know, in a way, it's the multiple hindrance attack, right? You know, it's just like it comes on all at once, and we can relate to this. This is the, this is the human condition. So this cultivation of mind, you know, this um, precious opportunity that we have to be able to turn this self-reflective consciousness on the objects of our, our mind and our body, sensations, emotions, feelings, and actually see what's going on and discover what's going on so that we are not so overcome by our experience. We're not so overcome by our, our mind, our thinking mind, or our emotional, uh, uh, emotional uh, body. There is a way to overcome. So this is where the teaching comes in, this teaching of the Buddha, which when I was um, sitting a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society, is a, you know some some years ago before many of us started reading the uh, Pali text. It was only really in the last maybe 15 years that some very good translations came out that were a little bit more readable, like um, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's Majjhima Nikaya, which is really very accessible for us. And before that, there was a little bit m- much more difficult and more dry reading, not so inviting. And so uh, before these um, more accessible teachings came out, I remember a teacher who gave a teaching uh, in one of the Dharma talks, and I remember so clearly my response when I heard this particular quote from the Buddha. And the quote was and is, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. 
whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. I mean, it's just such a clear and direct teaching for us as uh, with, our, with our capacity to be aware, with our capacity, which we first have to develop, which we first have to cultivate, um, this, this uh, way of actually being able to recognize what's happening at the level of our thought, then we can start to look at the way our mind is patterned in its inclination. How how does it turn? I remember when I was traveling in India, I think I may have mentioned that I spent uh, many many winters uh, traveling in India, teaching in India, and um, it was, for those of you who have been there, it's, you know, it's really um, a country of extremes. It has immense, exquisite beauty, but it also has very painful and challenging uh, um, corruption and poverty and um, uh, just the way that so much is, everything's out. There's nothing in this country, everything's really behind walls, but in India, everything, there's no walls. Everything happens right out in the streets and in, in front of you. So birth, aging, sickness, and death, it's just happening right there. And for myself, who grew up uh, in a pretty sheltered and protective environment, I hadn't really seen very much in, in my uh, growing life. And so it was really hard. There was so much about it that was hard. And my mind, my pattern of mind, tends to go towards aversion, towards what I don't like. And I, in India, I could just see how strong that pattern was. I would just keep looking at the things that were so unpleasant and painful and feel the distress of that. Uh, one time I remember being on a bus uh, in um, Delhi and I was just looking out the window and there's massive traffic in the, in the street of, of taxis and cars and trucks and horses that are pulling carts and oxen that are kind of jammed up in the traffic and the buses and just jammed down the street with smoke and pollution. And I would look out the window and I would see the, the horse, these, these horses. And I would just see the anguish and the stress on their face and the way the bit was just being pulled in their mouth and how they were struggling in this, in this massive uh, uh, of, of metal and, and pollution and humanity. And I would just be fixated on the pain and how horrible it was for these uh, horses. And, and my mind would just get locked and I would just... just find myself just falling into more and more despair. And I didn't at that time really know, I really didn't understand that there might be a way to, the the wisdom really, to disengage so that I wasn't getting pulled down so much, that I didn't have to get pulled down into despair. And so the Buddha speaks about this, uh, the practice of turning the mind Turning the mind, Martin was speaking some about this last night, how we turn the mind, in this case, to something that is more, uh, uh, something that will support the lifting of the mind rather than the pulling down of the mind. You know, really through the awareness and through the recognition of what's happening, this turning away into something that would be more helpful, more supportive for presence and for engagement, rather than just getting so lost and fixated. So really this awareness to begin to know how is our mind inclining? That's we have to know that first before we can start actually working with the mind. This is from Shanti Deva. Stephen was talking about this and also his translation from A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Those, um, those who wish to guard their practice should very attentively guard their minds. For those who do not guard their minds will be unable to guard their practice. 
in this world, unsubdued and crazed elephants are incapable of causing such harms as the miseries of the deepest hell, which can be caused by the unleashed elephant of my mind. But if the elephant of my mind is firmly bound on all sides by the rope of mindfulness, all fears will cease to exist and all virtues will come into my hand. All fears will cease to exist and all virtues will come into my hand. And I love what he's pointing out there because as the fears fade away, it's like the ice melting. The ice starts to melt and then the virtues, the qualities of the heart, come forth like the compassion and the love and the wisdom, the generosity, all the heart, the heartful qualities can start to actually come forth because our mind isn't so bound up in the fear and the confusion and the despair and the fixations. I could see this so strongly in my own mind. So this mindfulness, because we also see that when we are aware of how the mind is inclining, we can also feel the emotional response of that also. It's not just our mind inclines, but our whole being goes with it. Just as with those seeing those horses and being so, so uh, upset and despairing and uh, depressed a lot of the time because it seemed, to, I felt... Uh, helpless. It's, the situation seemed hopeless. And you're just you know, finding that, that's, that the whole cycling down, but that the whole body, not just the mind, but the motions too, all get pulled. The whole physiology get pulled in, in with that. So when we start to incline the mind and turn the mind, we're also lifting that whole constriction, contraction that comes about. And then the possibility for the virtues to come forth. When we have no awareness, there's nothing we can do. And this is what we see. Just see this, you know, that's a lot of what's happening on the planet. It's just the, as Stephen was speaking about this morning, this, the repetitiveness of the craving, the repetitive, repetitiveness of the grasping. We're caught we're caught and we cycle around in the habits, in the responses. I think this little uh, uh, fable says it well. I, I just, I, 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 I laugh when I, when I uh, hear this, when I heard it the first time. A woman wants some potatoes for the meal she is cooking, so she sends her husband to the marketplace to buy potatoes. As he walks out the door, she calls after him, be sure and get a good price. So all the way to the marketplace, the man is thinking about potatoes and what he'll have to pay. If he buys the very best potatoes, he knows he'll have to pay more than if he buys lesser quality potatoes. On the other hand, the lesser quality potatoes are just that, not so good. In fact, he knows he'll have to be very careful in buying other than top price potatoes because the seller might try to stick him with a bad potato, even a rotten potato. When he thinks of someone cheating him by giving him a rotten potato, he gets really mad. Why do people have to be so greedy as to stick me with a rotten potato, he thinks. Just at this point, he reaches the stall of the potato seller and screams at him, you can keep your rotten potatoes, and walks off. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what we do, isn't it? We create this whole reality, this whole scenario in our own minds, and by the time we actually you know, get to where we're going, we, it seems real. And then we're relating to the situation as if that, the, 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 the markets, the seller was, that, the potato seller was actually the problem. And I don't think that that's the way it really is. So here's the sutta that I really love, which helps to re- shed some light for us on how to work with our mind, how to really cultivate the training in our mind. And interestingly enough, um, 
the way this sutta starts, it's from the Ma, it's Majjhima Nikaya number um, number nineteen. Um, it's called Two Kinds of Thoughts. I can't say the Pali as beautifully as Stephen and Martine do, so I will avoid saying the Pali. Um, and the interesting thing is that I think today Stephen was talking about how there isn't very much, or actually he said not much of anything uh, about the Buddha before he became enlightened. And this particular discourse is uh, from the time before the Buddha was enlightened. Um, he, sa- he starts it off by saying, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, he took on this practice that is described in this sutta. And so here we actually have some glimpse as to the training that the Buddha was involved with um, before his awakening. And we can see how he really was really training his mind, really looking at his mind here. And so it goes, it starts off like this. It occurred to me Suppose I divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I set on one side thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, or letting go, thoughts of non-ill will, and thoughts of non-cruelty. We might think of non-ill will as an aspect of loving-kindness. When, some, when we're, the mind is not filled with ill-will, there's a quality of loving-kindness. When we think of a non-cruelty, this could be an expression of compassion. And so another way of saying this is that he set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of loving-kindness, and thoughts of compassion, these wholesome qualities of mind. And I think it's interesting, too, just to point out that the, Bu- the Buddha, before he was the Buddhist, we might say the Buddha-to-be, um, Siddhartha Gautama, did have thoughts of ill will, thoughts of cruelty, thoughts of sensual desire. You know, this, was, this is, again, a glimpse into the mind, the mind of the Buddha-to-be before his awakening. So he takes this discriminating awareness, the discriminating uh, factor of awareness, which can know and discriminate its experience and say this is different from that, this quality of consciousness itself. And then he reflected, and this goes also uh, back to something Martine was speaking about, how we can, uh, again, use this creative thought this creative engagement with our thought. We don't, it's not like letting go of the thought or trying to get rid of the thought, but actually using the thought to reflect on the thought. And in this case, the danger of having these kinds of thoughts. He says that when these unwholesome thoughts would arise, like sense desire, ill will, or cruelty, And sense-desire here is that craving for some kind of sensual gratification to bring about a certain kind of happiness because there's a sense of emptiness or, or lack of that happiness. So that craving he's talking about here, the craving for that sense desire. When these thoughts arose, these thoughts, he reflected, these thoughts lead to my own affliction, to others' affliction, to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, leads away from nibbana. We reflected on this. And he said that when he considered this, the thoughts started to subside. He didn't, they didn't have as much power. And then he said, whenever the thoughts arose, he did away with them. He did not follow them. Because the wisdom, this light of wisdom, he could see that when he followed them, when he got caught up in them, they would lead to some difficulty and obstruct his wisdom and not lead towards this nibbana, towards this cooling of the greed, 
hatred, and confusion. This mind training, this kind of really paying attention and not following these kinds of thoughts. And then he says that uh, when the wholesome thoughts arose, like renunciation or loving kindness, compassion, these thoughts, his reflection was, these thoughts do not lead to my own affliction or to others' affliction or to the affliction of both. They aid in wisdom. They do not cause difficulty and lead towards Nibbana. You see, this is simple reflection. This is, these are thoughts that I want to cultivate. These are thoughts I want to actually incline towards. I want to engage with. It's a very different kind of orientation than trying to stop our thoughts or get rid of our thoughts, a kind of a nihilistic view about our thoughts. But actually, how do we take this um, uh, intelligent mind and start to uh, uh, have it support our journey towards more happiness and freedom? He said when he considered the wholesome thoughts and the consequences of having wholesome thoughts, he said that when he considered this, he said, if I think and ponder upon these thoughts, even for a night, even for a day, even for a night and day, I see nothing to fear from it. I see nothing to fear from it. I see no problem. And I I really, it's just so interesting to reflect on that because he's saying, yeah, go ahead and think about those things night and day. Think about them, you know, because it's going to produce wisdom and the virtues and and lead towards Nibbana. So we can really use our, our thoughts in that way. But we want to pay attention, see which way our mind is inclining. But I, you know, I love here he adds a, a little kind of a footnote for us. And he says, just to be careful, he says, be careful, because with excessive thinking and pondering, I might tire my body. And when the body is tired, the mind becomes disturbed. And when the mind is disturbed, it is far from concentration. It's far from being settled. So he says, just, yeah, you can think day and night about these virtue, virtuous uh, things, but, but be careful because if your mind gets tired, then you may start to get disturbed and you'll be right back where you were before. So he's really pointing out this middle way, you know, a middle way so, so that we're not, um, begin falling into extremes or heading for a dead end with this. So he says, I steadied my mind internally, quieted it, brought it to singleness and concentrated it. Why is that? So my mind should not be disturbed. And when I reflect on this for myself, I can see very much that that's what I often do when I see that I might be, I might have been caught up in too much inquiry or too much reflection and I'm getting a little tired. I could feel how that's getting repetitive. I can just kind of let go and then come back into my breath, kind of ground myself, breathe more calmly, more evenly, and let go. You know, it's not that it's, uh, I shouldn't be thinking or it's bad in some way. It's just like, no, it's not so helpful, kind of getting out of balance and so then grounding. And so you see that's very much part of the kind of the, the rhythm of how I am with myself now, so that the thoughts aren't so, they're not um, impacting quite so much in the way they have in the past. But there's much more flexibility and and, uh, awareness just to see, oh yeah, that's too much now. Just let it go, let it go. It's kind of a kind uh, wisdom there, and then a, a capacity to be able to settle once again. So you can see how the Buddha is really emphasizing this reflective capacity for us as a way to cultivate our wisdom. 
because these teachings are very much about the cultivation of wisdom. Mindfulness is our tool. Mindfulness is the vehicle. It's not, we're not trying to just be more mindful beings. And I can remember in the early years of my practice when people, a lot of my friends, we were really getting on the mindfulness train and getting very excited about mindfulness. And, and so, but we used it against each other. If you know, somebody would drop something or you know, they close the door on your, your hand or something, you're not being very mindful. You know, like, you know, that's like what you were supposed to try to do all the time was this kind of be mindful, be mindful. And it, it started to be almost like a pressure, uh, an expectation, as if that was the goal. But we forget that there, we're really cultivating, we're cultivating mindfulness, but in order to deepen our wisdom, to deepen our understanding about this, this life, this nature of this existence, and as we do that, the heart awakens in these virtues of compassion and, and care, loving kindness, and connection, harmony. And so, so this is, we're cultivating the wisdom and compassion with mindfulness as our tool, mindfulness as our vehicle. At some point, there, there we find that, yes, we can use mindfulness as our practice, But at some point, there's not even so much need to try to be mindful because we find we're here. (laughs) I don't have to be mindful. I am mindful. I don't have to try all the time, put effort into it. I'm already here. I'm already present. I'm already awake. I already know my experience. What do I have to do? How much more do I have to put on top of that? And then sometimes we actually do need a little bit more effort. The Buddha actually addresses that with these two lovely um, little analogies, ones that I use a lot too. It's just when I was reviewing this uh, sutra, I just realized how much this really has informed me um, in my practice. And so this is the analogies the Buddha comes up with. He says, Just as in the last month of the rainy season, in the autumn, when the crops thicken, a cowherd would guard his cows by constantly tapping and poking them on this side and that with a stick to check and curb them. Why is that? Because he sees that he could be flogged, imprisoned, fined, or blamed if he let them stray into the crops. So too I saw in unwholesome states danger and defilement, and in wholesome states, the blessing of renunciation, the aspect of cleansing, the aspect of healing. And I love that because it really shows that, you know, when the cows start to wander and they're getting into other people's business or other people's property, you know, you got to get the stick out and bring them back. Come on, come back home. You can't just let your cows wander because they're going to start to get you in trouble. You could be flogged, imprisoned, fined, or blamed if you let your cows stray, right? And so you get the stick out, (laughs) come on back, come on back, you know, and then we have to put in some effort. That's when the mindfulness is important. Become attentive, pay attention, and come back home. Ground yourself, come back to the breath, clear the mind, use some restraint around the mind. And um, we protect ourselves in this way, and this is important. But then the second part of the analogy, he talks about when we can let go of that. He says, just as in the last month of the hot season, when all the crops have been brought inside the villages, A cowherd would guard his cows while staying at the root of a tree or out in the open, since he needs only to be mindful that the cows are there. So too, there was need for me only to be mindful that those states were there. And I love, I often have that image of just sitting at the the root of a tree, relaxing, resting, 
not making so much effort, putting the stick down because the cows are home. The cows aren't getting into any trouble. And so he says, all, the, all there is is the need for me to be mindful that the cows are there, or that they're thoughts that are still operating, but they're not problematic. They're not troublesome. So there's not much to do. So relax. Just rest. And I think sometimes we forget that we can just rest. We can relax. When things are okay, things are okay. One of our teachers, Manindraji, used to say, when you're happy, be happy. Just be happy. There's not much you have to do. Just enjoy the happiness. So sometimes I think we override, you know, we make too much effort in the practice sometimes. We don't relax enough and just enjoy the ease, enjoy the calmness here. This is very much my practice. I see this as this grounding, this resting, and the guarding, guarding my mind, paying attention to the way that the the cows are wandering, uh, what cows, what color they are, you know, if they're problematic or not. You know, when I need to reel the mind back in, um, using a kind of wise restraint, this wise restraint on the mind door, so, and we can, we can see this, you know, the conditioning is so strong, the habit of thinking is so strong, so of course uh, the old conditioning is still going to arise, the kind of comparing mind or the self-deprecating kinds of thoughts or the judging thoughts or, you know, the sense of being a failure or I can't do it or impatience and frustration and, you know, the, all the stories that we can weave around that and with some wise reflection, we can see that's not helpful. That's not leading us towards more ease and more calm and more happiness and openness. So we stop with enough reflection, with enough mindfulness, with enough training. We start to be able to control the mind. The Buddha said in, in, in I think it was the, the next discourse, he says, I am the master of my mind. I think the thoughts I want to think, and I don't think the thoughts I don't want to think. I am the master of my mind. And this is really what's possible for us. We can become masterful. We become masterful over the mind rather than the mind being masterful over us. Oftentimes we feel like our thinking mind is the master and we're kind of like, you know, often feel victimized by our minds. But in this practice, we turn that around. So the, in a way, the mind becomes our, our slave. We, 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 the, we use the mind. The mind doesn't use us. We feel masterful. We feel in charge. There's more creative involvement with our experience rather than the, all the past, the condition, the conditioned past being what's operating and uh, manifesting in our experience. So we're really breaking these habits, breaking these habits of mind so that we actually experience more ease, more clarity, more wisdom, more virtue, more stillness, so that the thoughts aren't so distracting and agitating. We feel quieter. We feel more still. This is um, from Sogyal Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher. He says, in the ancient meditation traditions, it is said that at the beginning, thoughts will arrive one on top of another, uninterrupted like a steep mountain waterfall. Gradually, as you perfect meditation, thoughts become like the water in a deep, narrow gorge. Then they are like a great river, slowly winding its way down to the sea. And finally, the mind becomes like a still and placid ocean, ruffled by only the occasional ripple or wave. 
we start to experience a sea, really more of a sea of silence, a a sea of stillness. And then the thoughts arise and pass, but they're not creating so many ripples, so many waves, so much disturbance in the mind. It's not like they go away. It's, in fact, I'm not sure they ever go away. We, I don't think we want them to go away. It's too much, they're too creative, right? too interesting. They're important. I mean, they can't go away. But yet we change this whole, we change our whole relationship to our mind, to our thoughts through this training. So I'll end with um, the Buddha's words from the Dhammapada this is Gil Fronsdale's translation, very famous quote of the Buddha. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. So again, let's just sit for a few moments. We won't have discussion tonight. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. It's about 25 after, so some time for some walking before the next sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.